Hey there. Grace and peace to you. I hope you're doing well. Glad you're listening to this church's podcast. I'm Jeffrey Rickman. I'm the preacher. If you've listened to this podcast before, I'm the voice you're always hearing because very few people preach other than me. I love preaching. I'm not exactly jealous about it, but I'm not exactly calling on a lot of people to take my place either. So I uh, had somebody come visit this last Sunday, and and he said at the end, uh, you really like preaching, don't you? And I said, yeah, I really do. And so I hope that comes through. I uh, In the segment you're about to hear, I, it's my sermon from Sunday, and we had been covered all of Colossians, and so we finished the second half of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 together. And, um, you know, I love the book, and I love talking about it, but this was one of those times I've really liked... You know, I've gone several months now pretty much feeling good about everything I've said from the pulpit, but... I got back home and said, ah, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't. So I I don't know why I keep joking, but I made a couple jokes from the pulpit. I think I do it just to kind of get attention and keep people close, but that means that sometimes I go over that line of what's helpful and then just trigger people. And so this, this one, I mean, it's very hard to preach on this topic anyway because— it's uh, the house. Not there are several household codes in the New Testament telling us how we should live together, and they don't really conform to modern notions of how it is that people should live in their homes as Christians. And uh, I don't shy away from this stuff because if it's in the Bible, it's it's necessary. And so we we talk about. It, I do my best to put meat on those bones, you know, because the Bible doesn't answer a lot of particulars about how to do things, so hopefully what I offer is helpful, but I was definitely a little more loosey-goosey where I should have been formal at places, so I hope that's not a stumbling block to you. Um, The other thing to say before we get into the sermon is that uh, I come from a tradition that observes um, more of the Christian liturgical calendar than a lot of American churches. So some American churches, they just do Christmas and Easter— um, a lot of Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches have feast days pretty much every week and, and holiday. We don't get into it that much. We're kind of in a middle ground of um, the, the Christmas is a season, not just one day. There's 12 days of Christmas, and Easter is also a season of 50 days of celebration. But each of those seasons, Christmas and Easter, it are preceded by seasons as well. So before Christmas, we had Advent. Those are four weeks of preparation and anticipation of Christ's second coming. But then before Easter, there's 40 days that mirror Christ's time in the wilderness called Lent. And so some years I've been real real faithful in my observance of Lent. Other years I haven't been. Um, for me, it's very clearly not necessary for salvation. It's not a salvation issue. But it is something that can be really helpful in a person's spiritual life, in a congregation's spiritual life. So it's 40, 40 days of self-denial and abstinence and almsgiving. That's that's pretty much traditionally what's done. And so a good pastor who observes these things and encourages the church to do so as well is going to say, hey, go ahead and start thinking about if you're going to be practicing, observing Lent, what is it that you want to uh, uh, start practicing self-denial around? Are you going to fast? Are you going to abstain from something? What is something that you usually put your trust in or take comfort from that out of reverence for Christ, you're going to say, hey, I'm I'm not doing without, or I am going to do without these things so I can lean more upon 
my faith in Christ Jesus at this time. Just be praying about it. Just be thinking about it. If you have any questions about how to fast or how to practice self-denial, you know, a lot of people don't practice this. They just do what they want when they want, and that's really toxic spiritually. Um, so anyway, that's what I'm here for. You can reach out me, to me at pastor.rickman at gmail.com, or you can call me at the church or whatever. So anyway, it's time for us to study God's Word together. Go ahead and open your Bible. Go over to Colossians chapter 3. I hope you enjoy your time with me and my church. All right, let us pray. Oh God, our Father, we pray for thy church, which is set today amid the perplexities of a changing order and face to face with new tasks. Baptize her afresh in the life-giving spirit of Jesus. Bestow upon her a great responsiveness to duty, a swifter compassion with suffering, and an utter loyalty to the will of God. Help her to proclaim boldly the coming of the kingdom of God. Put upon her lips the ancient gospel of her Lord. Fill her with the prophet's scorn of tyranny and with a Christ-like tenderness for the heavy-laden and downtrodden. Bid her cease from seeking her own life, lest she too make her valiant to give up her life to humanity, that, like her crucified Lord, she may mount by the path of the cross to a higher glory, through the name Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So it was using that feminine pronoun there for quite a bit. Who is this she, her it's talking about? The church. The church scripturally, and the, the key text for me is in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, the the church traditionally is understood to be feminine. The understanding that we're given biblically is that God has built this creation in what would be considered a complementarian way. Everybody is not the same in an absolute sense. We have all of creation composed of males and females coupled together for God's glory. So Jesus quoted from Genesis in the beginning, God made us male and female. And of course, this is something that the world is currently confused about. Our culture is, is very much confused about if there is something called maleness or masculinity or fatherhood, if there's a difference between men and women, or if they're really interchangeable, and, and any distinctions between us are really quite cosmetic and un, unconsequential. Um, here in this prayer, it's participating in this biblical worldview, which is we collectively are feminine, and we are a complement to a masculine. We have a husband. Who's that? Jesus. Jesus, we are the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. That's the biblical category for it. So you have a male who is the Lord of the household of God, and then you have the female. We are the church, and at our best, we are the bride of Christ, and we are called to be blameless, faultless, perfect as an offering to God. And one day there's going to be a marriage ceremony. Uh, this is described in Revelation chapter 21, I believe, where we, the bride of Christ, will be united with Christ for all of eternity and live forever with him in matrimonial bliss in the kingdom. What's this have to do with our reading for today? Well, today we're going to pick up in chapter 3 where we left off with a household code, and it treats men and women as different. It says that husbands and wives have different roles, fathers and mothers have different roles in the household. And um, we live in an era where this message is scoffed at. And I'll just say on the front end, I used to scoff at this stuff, and I don't anymore. You, of course, this is America, and you can believe whatever you want to, okay? I'm not going to tell you you have to believe this. I am, I'm going to say, you know, we should believe what's in the Bible, and if you don't, you should be worried about yourself. But um, Sarah Beth and I, when we got married, 
we were very much more worldly in our understanding of maleness and femaleness. Um, we saw marriage as uh, an exercise in two equally endowed people with authority, and uh, we fought for a year. And then we decided, hey, what would happen if we actually just let the Bible rule our marriage? And I'll be the, the, the husband, and you'll be the wife, and we'll have different roles. And I'm not going to tell you we haven't fought since. What I am going to tell you is we have a very happy household now. We have a very happy marriage now where it wasn't. Uh, and I've seen other marriages from the inside that don't operate this way, where husbands and wives continually bicker about who should get their way whenever they come into conflict. They argue and they fight and they work against one another. I've seen so many of those marriages fall apart at this point, you just can't tell me that that's a, an alternative model that works. And that's not to say that if that's the model of your marriage and you're together that you're wrong and you're going to, maybe it'll work out for you. I'm not going to speak words of, of negativity over your marriage. What I am going to say is I believe that the structure that is uh, presented by Scripture works quite well. So I actually came up with some graphics uh, that I wanted to, to, this is what I understand to be, it's, it's titled, I didn't make this, by the way, I steal all this stuff off the internet. Biblical order of the family. So the, the biblical understanding of any household of, of, of Christ, where the, the people in the household are believers, you have Christ that is the true head of the family. But under that, he has endowed the husband to be Christ to the family. He must protect the family, lead the family, provide for the family. After him, you have the wife. Now, when we have after, we don't have better than, or less than, or it's not better or worse than. We'll talk about this when we get into the text. These are just different roles that operate in relationship with each other. The wife is there to comfort, teach, and nurture. If you think that's lame, uh, I heartily disagree with you. As having a wife who does these things, I can't tell you the power and the dignity in these things. Um, and then the children, their job is to love parents and obey parents, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. I had a couple more memes to share and just, yeah, I know you're looking at your daughter. Hear it. But, Dad, you're going to get your own here in a minute. Okay, let's go to the next slide. <laughs> Mother Teresa, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. If you want to change the world, go home and love your family. If you want to change the world, go home and love your family. This is something that needs to be impressed. In our culture, we have a bunch of people that go out and they want to do great things outside of the home and then they come home and they're terrible to the people they live with. God help you. If that's you, I hope you feel so uncomfortable in your own skin today. I hope I make you hate yourself today so you go home and you're better your family. Nothing worse than a hypocrite who says he loves the Lord and abuses his family. Let's go to the next one. This is a quote from uh, D.L. Moody. If I wanted to find out whether a man was a Christian, I wouldn't go to his minister. I would go and ask his wife. We need more Christian life at home. If a man doesn't treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. I love that quote. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. What is the quality of your pudding in Jesus, how you treat your family, how you love, uh, love the ones you live with, how you treat them? If you go out in the world and you get stressed out and you come home and you bring, and it's not just men who do this, women, I don't know if you know this, statistically it's been shown that women are every bit as abusive as men in the household, whether you're talking about emotionally or physically. This is something our culture doesn't talk about. Guess what? Equal, men and women are equally fallen, are equally sinful. The battle of the sexes does not interest me at all, but forget about me, it doesn't interest Christ at all because we're all equally sinners. Amen? One more, and then we'll get into the scriptures. Modern culture says children are a burden. The Lord says children are a gift. 
the fruit of the womb is a reward. So what I want everybody to get from these words of Scripture today is that family is a holy calling. That's not to say that if you follow Jesus, you have to have a family. Jesus did bless spiritual eunuchs. That was reinforced by Paul. But it is to say that if we are to be family people, it is absolutely essential that we do family well. It is not a given. These are not the people that we take for granted. These are the people that we prove our faith by. Okay. I feel like I've made myself clear so far. Let's go on and actually get into the scriptures. And I know it says we begin in 18, but I believe we're supposed to keep in mind what came directly before. This is where we ended last week, verse 17. He said, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this is clear. Our faith in Jesus Christ is not, um, Seinfeld is a, a, a sinful show. I'm not gonna direct you to it, but there was a, a helpful, what was the, the short one called? One Costanza, what, George? George? He, uh, there was an episode where he talked about having different spheres in his world, or I think he called them different worlds, and then, you know, he, he tried to keep everything compartmentalized. And this is how a lot of people are about faith. They have their religious life, they have their family life, they have their work life. The scripture knows no such division. Even a division between sacred and secular is completely a, a, a phony invention. There's just the faith of Jesus Christ. Christ is all and is in all. We heard all this language last week. Everything was made in, through, by, and for him. He is the center of creation. Our lives are not our own. We belong to him. He bought us with the blood uh, shed on the cross. I should be saying, this should all be familiar. He is our Lord. He is our lens through which we see the world. And everything we do is a testament to him, to our relationship with him. So it's saying everything we do in word or deed should be done in his name. And then it goes directly into family. The clear inference being your life in your home is what proves your faith. Then, straight to wives. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And instantly, all the feminists are out. Because a, a, a key feminist conviction is that men and women are of equal worth, and that means they do the exact same stuff. Biblically, that is not a position. It, the biblical position is... Men and women are of absolutely equal worth, but they have different roles, in the household at least. So we're part of a tradition that acknowledges women in the pulpit, but just because we say women can have a place in the pulpit does not mean that they and their husbands are interchangeable and they have the exact same role. The Bible says that men have a certain role and women have a certain role and they are complements to each other. That's where the word complementarian comes from. They're on the same team. They're working together. So anytime I do marriage counseling, this is a fundamental thing that I work with, uh, husbands and wives on, because conflict comes when you don't understand you're on the same team. When you start digging against the other, tearing them down, you don't realize people are so stupid. When you make that marital covenant, you're connected to them. You're bound to them. So if you're tearing them down, you're tearing yourself down. You're on the same team. You help each other. And it can't be done alone. I know we live in this era with a bunch of single mothers, and we want to make them and their children feel like they have all the same benefits as everybody else. They don't. They don't. They are working at a terrible disadvantage. Same thing for single fathers. You need a mother and a father in the home for these children. The role of the father is absolutely essential. You cannot replace fathers. Doesn't matter how many women you throw in that position, there's but one father, the man of the household, and he does things no woman can. It's been statistically shown, for instance, that the faith of a father influences a child miles more than the faith of a mother. 
It would be wonderful if a woman's faith could carry her children. It can't. But when a father is faithful, engaged in the church, regularly bringing the faith into the home, there is a much higher instance of children sticking with the faith into adulthood. The father's faith just matters more in that way. That's not to say women don't matter as much. There are different ways in which men and women matter differently. And we have to work together to care for children, to minister to society. The moment we adopt this Western individualist worldview that I'm just as good as anybody else and I can do whatever I want, that doesn't fit with the Bible. So wives are told to submit to their husbands and you know the, the, the modern lens says, oh, they just think women are less than. When a, when a lieutenant submits to a general in the armed services, does that mean that the lieutenant is just an embarrassing, weak person? No. That's how armed forces work. You have to have a person at the top, and then you have to have those who enact the will of the person at the top. You have to have the general. You have to have colonels and lieutenants and all these. The whole point is to work together. A household has to work together. A household is not a bunch of individuals just doing whatever they want. A household is an entity, a collective entity, that has been tasked by God to glorify him and be salt and light to this dark, dank world. We're on mission. And there has to be a head of the household, and then everybody has to operate and support. Now, if, if it was disrespectful to women, it would just treat her as one of the children. The wife, it doesn't do that. It has a complementary role for women in the household. It does also honor children, and we'll see that in a minute. But whenever it tells women to be subordinate to men, it's not saying you're less than, you're second-class citizens. It's saying you are an integral point of God's power in the household to work alongside the husband. And if you take offense to that, then you have more basic marital issues that you need to take care of because it should be a joyful thing to submit to your husband. Sarah Beth, most days, can I say, enjoys submitting to me. But also, if you're a husband and you're lording it over your wife, I'm the head of the household, I pay the rent, you do as I say, well, then something is wrong, too, because your wife should be joyfully submitting to you. And if she's not, there are some basic trust issues that need to get resolved. So husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. To me, that sounds pretty clear. Do not be harsh with your wife. Except when she talks back. <laughs> That's a terrible joke, but I'm showing this is how people do. They say, okay, I know what's in the Bible, but oh, she really tested me. No, 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 no. Don't be harsh with your wife ever, ever, never. It's never okay. Children, verse 20, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children, is this an easy thing to do? Obey your parents all the time? I got unruly, willful children. No, it's not easy. The cool thing about this, though, is it treats children as people of free will and agents worthy of addressing. In this culture, there was no willfulness of children. They just beat the heck out of children that rebelled. Here, he's saying, children, you have a role to play in the household, and that's to obey and submit. By doing this, you're pleasing God. Fathers. See, you, you see it, it, women and children, but really it's most concerned, and we'll go to slaves and then back to slave masters, it's concerned with how the people at the top of hierarchies behave. This is not something that's keeping uh, the people at the bottom of hierarchy in line. It is doing that, but it's much more concerned with if you have worldly authority, how are you using it? So it's already said, how are you treating your wives? If you're treating them harshly, you're failing. Um, before we get into fathers, I have to say, these are not conditional. 
You know, some people will look at marriage as conditions. You know, we made vows to each other. I will love and honor you in sickness and health, for better, for worse. Well, that was all conditioned upon you doing it. So, you know what? You're not loving me well in my sickness, so I abandon you now. That's not how marital covenant works. That's not how relationships work. This is an unconditional how we're going to be in the family. A man is called to love his wife even when she's not very lovable. If all of a sudden she just smells really bad and it's awful to be in the same room as her, you got to love this woman and take care of her. She's your wife. Too bad. If all of, your hus- all of a sudden your husband gets fat and I'm not attractive the way I was in my 20s, you have to love me anyway. I got you. You're stuck. But that's how this covenant thing works. In the household of God, yes, you're going to have fathers fail, husbands fail, mothers fail, children fail. You don't get to say, okay, well, the household is falling apart now. Now we don't have to do it. No, daily we need to be resolving, I'm going to be a biblical husband. Even if my wife is not a biblical wife, I'm going to be a biblical husband. Even if my husband is not a biblical husband, I'm going to be a biblical wife. And I'll tell you, sometimes there's nothing you can do to change somebody. Sometimes there's nothing you can do to change them. But I'll tell you, as a man, a gentle and loving, supporting woman is going to change me a heck of a lot better than a shrew, uh, bitter wife. You know, I used to have a resentful wife. (laughs) And she had cause for resentment. But what's made me want to be a better man is her loving support. And I would like to think that a woman will respond better to a man um, and come out of a bad place when he loves her and pours himself out for her the way that Christ does for us. Amen. That's how we have to be for one another. We're not good to each other on the condition that you're good to us. We're either we've just said, I've, I've been bought at a price. I'm Christ Jesus. Here's who I'm going to be in the household. I'm a child. Even though I've got an idiot father, I'm going to submit to him. I'm not saying that about my father. I'm actually feeling sorry for my kids. They're going to They're going to submit to me because they want to please God, and our household is going to be better for it. All right, let's go on. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. This is actually a really normal thing, and and part of a father's job is to condition his children and put them through adversity, right? But there's a way of going too far. There's fathers picking on kids, provoking them too much. My dad and I were like this for a few years. It was rough. But I remember when Susanna, quit mean mugging me, Susanna. When, when Susie was a little girl, I, I, I would pick on her a bit. I don't remember the particulars of it. But I remember Sarah Beth one day said, fathers, don't provoke your children. And I stopped picking on her the way that I, and I, I was, I, it felt like a part of me. It was a part of nature that I really wanted to, I don't know what that was. But it's gone now. My wife rebuked me out of love. And I received that, and I'm really glad not to have this provoking relationship with my kids. We'll see what happens when they hit puberty, but for right now, it's going really well. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Slaves. Servants. Okay, so there are two things to say here. One is the Bible is, we want it to say certain things it doesn't say. One is the Bible does not uh, declare war on slavery. It operates within a slaveholding society. All of society at this point in history, up until five minutes ago, was slaveholding. It was just part of part of life. So every single culture around the world, with very few exceptions, had slaves until recently. Okay, so this is not the scandalous thing here. Question is, how should masters treat slaves, and how should slaves interact with masters? And so this has to do with employer and employee today because there's still dynamics of power involved. But the the thing the Bible does is not to say, no more slavery for you, have a civil war, kill anyone who disagrees with you. Rather, it's to say, if you're going to participate in this, here's how you do it. 
Here's how you can still be right with God in the midst of it. And if that scandalizes you, keep coming to that thought, you know. We have, by the way, more slaves in the world today than at any other point in history. And not just across the world. Here in the United States of America, there is a whole slave trade that, of course, is not legal, but is going on. Uh, much of our society is based on, you know, do you have cheap clothing? There might have been a slave making that clothing. With Western wealth, in many senses, is based on slave labor. So rather than just acting as though this is incomprehensible and how could they ever, Christians could be a part of making sure that people around the world are treated with dignity, um, and that's what I think we should be about. That's what this is about. It's saying that, that slaves, you know, it begins with slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Don't rebel. Don't be nasty. Obey in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as if you're working for the Lord, not for human masters. The communists in our midst might say, well, that works out well for the capitalists. They get their cheap labor, and they're told to work, 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 work. It keeps on going, though. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Verse 24, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It says, if you work humbly, well, God sees that it matters. He rewards. But masters, it is the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving. It says, okay, I, didn't, I shouldn't skip that part. Verse 25, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. And that's the end of the chapter. The chapter 4 begins with masters. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. That's a threat. That's a threat. It's saying uh, you stand in the place of God, and if you are abusive, if you abuse your authority, if you abuse your slaves, if you don't give them good treatment that they deserve, then you have an eternal judge that's going to take it out on you. So you tell me, you tell me, is it better to have a miserable life here on earth and get an eternal reward in heaven or to have a great here on, on earth and be punished forever, uh, you know? Absolutely one. That's why Jesus shows a clear preference for the poor, for the downtrodden, for the least of these. Those are the ones who suffer this side of heaven. If they maintain their humility, if they work hard as if for the Lord, if they live with integrity, God rewards for that for eternity. God shows no partiality, though. He doesn't care how high up you are on any totem. Actually, I think the, the best place on a totem pole to be is at the bottom, right? He doesn't care how low you are on the totem pole. He doesn't care what hierarchy you're on top of. If you do not exercise the authority God has given you righteously, then hellfire is for you. I believe in damnation. I believe in a, a just God who punishes the wicked no matter how rich or powerful or beloved they are. And that's what makes this okay. That's what makes it okay to have some people in this life who just don't have all the privileges of other people. Life isn't fair. We live in a fallen world, amen? And our, our role is not to be resentful about that and making everything right. Our role is to do what we can to bless others in the midst of this, this hellscape that we're in. And if it doesn't feel like a hellscape to you, that's because you're not watching what's going on. Let's go on. Verse 3. No, wait, is that where we are? We're still in verse... Okay, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. We've talked about this enough. I don't feel like I need to belabor it. And pray for us, too, 
that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So remember, Paul is in prison in Rome awaiting trial. He's got a retinue around him, some, some, uh, a posse, I don't know. Um, but they're not praying just to get out and get loose. They're praying that God might give them an opportunity to minister to those who have them in chains. What a guy, right? Verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Was Paul a good preacher? Was he a good speaker? He was the best there was. He's still saying, I need your prayers. Bathe me in prayer. I'm praying for you. You pray for me. As uh, Spurgeon said, no, no one can do me a better service than to pray for me. If you love people, pray for them. Amen? Verse 5, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Who's he talking about outsiders? Who's the outsiders? Heathens. Yeah, people outside of the covenant community of Christ. How did we behave towards them? Wisely. Be wise in the way you act towards them. Make the most of every opportunity. What is he talking about? Opportunity. Opportunity. Verse 6, let your conversation. He's talking about opportunities and conversation. Let your conversation be always full of of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So he's talking collectively to the members of the church. He's saying that you have a limited time to use your conversation for God's glory. Anytime you're, and he's talking about it in the context of outsiders, right? Anytime you're talking to someone outside of covenant relationship with Christ, you're talking to a person who is going to hell forever. And you need to talk to them about it so that they have a chance to repent. How, 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 you know, it's just the meanest thing ever. If I was talking to y'all and I had like mustard all on the side of my face, and then you just let me go talk to other people, you hate me, don't you? You have to tell me about the mustard on my face, okay? If I've, if I've got, uh, I don't know, a, a leech sucking my blood out and I'm going to die, you know, if you're just like, well, he probably knows what he's doing, you know, I'll leave him alone, then you hate me. Okay, if I'm building a house on train tracks and one of these days this train is going to come and demolish me and my family and you don't say anything, you hate me, don't you? And here we know that people are carrying around this, this untreatable disease, sin, it's going to kill them, drag them into hell. And we go, oh, they probably, they probably know what they're doing. You know, I'll, I'll leave them alone about the sin. I have the cure. You know, Jesus alone can save them. You know, but it makes people uncomfortable to hear about Jesus. So, you know, I'll just let the preacher talk. About, I don't need to talk to him about it. You hate them. That's a sign of hate if you don't want to talk about it. We got the most interesting, the most beautiful, the most amazing, the most gracious good news that the world has ever heard, and we don't want to talk about it? That's weird. When it says that let your words be seasoned with salt, salt does two things. It makes food delicious and Savory is the word, I think, and it preserves food that would go bad, right? And that's the, the role that we're supposed to play. You know, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, right? But if it loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing and will be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But here, our language is to be seasoned with salt. That means that what we say needs to be interesting. I know it's, it's hard for some people to be interesting. There are a lot of pastors that struggle with that. They get up and preach and it's the most interesting thing in the world that they're talking about, but it couldn't sound more boring. If I ever get like that, chase me out of this pulpit, please. So it's not only to be interesting, but it's supposed to lead to Christ. And if you're not interesting when you talk about Christ, that's weird. Because the good news is interesting. It's exciting. It's beautiful. When we talk about it, our faces should light up. We should relax. We should get joyful. If our faith is a stressful thing or an insecure thing, then that's indicating 
that we need to work on our faith life. The answer is not to avoid talking about it. The answer is to grow into the believers we know Christ deserves so that we joyfully talk about him with everybody because he's the center of the universe, amen? He is the center of our lives. If we're talking about everything but him, I think it's worth asking, is Christ really Lord of my life? I'm just going to blaze through chapter 4. This, this last part is just talking about the people around Paul and the people at this church in Colossae. Um, he's, he's doing this final connecting work. Tychicus, he says in verse 7, will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. He's vouching for this guy who's coming with this letter. Verse 8, I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening now. Onesimus, we're going to learn next week. We're reading Philemon next week. He was a slave who abandoned his master and was not a believer. He somehow ran into Paul, met the living Lord, and is now coming back as a slave to repent and enter into the community of faith. It's an incredible thing. We're going to talk a lot more about it next week. Verse 10, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Anybody who's read Acts of the Apostles knows that John Mark here, the cousin of Barnabas, he and Paul were not friends for a time. On the first missionary journey, Mark left him blowing in the wind. It came time to go on the second missionary journey, and Barnabas said, let's bring Mark again. Paul said, no, no. And the scriptures say the disagreement between them was so sharp that they actually went on two different journeys, Barnabas and John Mark on one, and then Paul and Silas on another. And a lot of people look at that and go, I guess it's okay to, to have feuds in the church and divide sometimes. Well, this indicates, well, you tell me, does it look like they're still separated and feuding? They've reconciled. Here, what does he say about Mark? Let's see, we are in 10. The cousin of Barnabas, you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Would he say this to a person that he is not in, in fellowship with? No. They've, they've reconciled. And that reconciliation, you better believe, it doesn't look like, oh, that's all water under the bridge. Let's not talk about it. There was a repentance. There was a forgiveness. They're now walking together in faith, such that John Mark has been with him, attending on him in prison, and is now going forward with his blessing. If there's someone who is supposedly a believer, they say they love Jesus, and you've had a falling out with them, guess what? Jesus requires repentance and forgiveness. If you did wrong, you need to apologize. If they did wrong when they apologize, you need to forgive them. Verse 11, Jesus, who is called Justice, this is a different Jesus. A lot of people were named Jesus back then. It's like uh, Joshua, the name Joshua. Um, or in like Hispanic cultures, a lot of people name their kids Jesus today, you know. So everybody wanted their kids to be a savior. That's what the name Jesus means, right? So this is a different Jesus. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my coworkers. All right, these are people who grew up Jews. They're, they're circumcised. And they have proved a comfort to me. And then now he turns to the Gentile believers that are with him. Epaphras, we've heard of him. He was the one who heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, and then he took it back to his hometown, Colossae. He's planted a church there, as well as Laodicea and Herapolis. They're all in that river basin together. So now he's talking about Epaphras. He is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus. He sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. 
Isn't that a great thing to pray for your brothers and sisters? Verse, verse 13, I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke. So uh, John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. And both of these Gospel authors are there with Paul. What a powerhouse, right? Luke, um, the doctor. This is the only place in Scripture where it describes him as a doctor or physician. I did not know this. And Demas, send greetings. So Luke is there, John Mark is there, and Demas. In 2 Timothy, we learn who Demas is. Demas is a guy who abandons Paul in his hour of need. He apostatizes and goes to the world. So the, the sermon in that, you know, Judas was with Jesus from the beginning, right, of his ministry. He saw all the miracles, and again, he forsook and betrayed Jesus. Same with Demas. Demas saw Paul say these powerful words, do these powerful things. He knew it was true, and yet, even seeing and knowing that, he went back to the world. He apostatized. This is something that happens. This is what explains the American church, by the way. How many people receive Christ and then go back to the world? That's the norm, folks. Just because you've been saved doesn't mean you stay saved. That's, that's what Demas, you know, some people might say, well, he was never saved to begin with. That's a distinction without a difference for me. Some people are inside the covenant community, but they don't stay. They're not faithful. They submit for a time. They're done submitting. They leave. It happens all the time. Was Paul faithless such that Demas should leave him? No. He was, he was a faithful servant. Just because someone leaves doesn't mean you did something wrong. This church should know that better than anybody. We've had people leave us, haven't we? And sure, we might have made some mistakes, but they didn't leave because we made mistakes. They left because they don't love Christ and his church. Let's see, we're in verse 13. No, 14. Yeah, 15. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. We don't know anything about these people, but they, they matter. After this letter has been read to you, see that it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete this ministry you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Remember my chains. Just a closing reflection. Remember the suffering of the saints. Remember the millions of believers that have come before you. Remember the... Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of believers right now who suffer for Christ's namesake, who live in hostile regions to carry his name to a, a dark world. Your faith is not your own. You're bound together with the saints of the ages. That's what that bell tree is about. It's just a small reminder of the saints that have come before us in this community. But we're tied to the body of Christ that, that spans time and space. Your faith is not your own. It's not about what feels good to you or makes sense to you. It's what conforms to the word of God. And just like the children in any Christian household, each and every one of us, children of God, is called to obey and submit. Amen.